Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Matthew chapter 21. I invite you to join me there, Matthew 21. We'll read the first 11 verses as you're making your way there. I want to say I'm very happy to be a member of a church that still sings and preaches about the cross. Because uh, without the cross, we would still be in our sins. It's the means that God used to um, bring about justification and the atonement for sins. And it is essential to the gospel. Matthew 21, 1, you know that before the cross came Jesus' triumphal entry. And that's what we find here in this particular passage. Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. People seem to be welcoming him as their king. This, of course, is Palm Sunday, the Sunday on your calendar immediately preceding Easter Sunday. And many church traditions call it Palm Sunday because of what we read here in Matthew 21. So let's read it. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Here comes the king. That's the title of the, mass, the message today. I appreciate Brother Tony Richmond preaching last Sunday. I got the joy of uh, being here and, and listening and being edified from uh, the word that he taught. And uh, we're so happy to have Brother Tony on our staff. But two Sundays ago, we concluded Luke chapter 13 as we're continuing to make our way through verse by verse that great book. And the last verse of Luke 13 finds Jesus declaring to the Jewish people of his own culture, Behold, he said, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until that time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that is a phrase, but it's really a quotation from Psalm 118. It is the declaration that the king is coming. And by coming into the city, riding the foal of a donkey, Jesus is declaring, he's here. It is I, Jesus says. Now the book of Hebrews presents Jesus as a priestly king on the order of Melchizedek. The Jewish people, though, were looking for that promised king who would restore Israel to glory and defeat her enemies and rule from Jerusalem with an iron scepter. 
But Jesus, of course, was and is the perfect fulfillment of all, all Old Testament messianic prophecy. And it looked for the world like that day the people were receiving him as their deliverer and as their king. They cut down palm branches and laid them in his path. They took off their robes and laid them down in the road, just as they had done, their ancestors that is, for this man Jehu, who in the book of 2 Kings was anointed to be the king by one of God's prophets. But unlike Jehu, Jesus was not just coming to overthrow a wicked king and kill his mother Jezebel. Jesus was on his way to defeat a greater foe that is of Satan, of, de of hell, and of death itself. Now we said a few weeks ago that as it relates to the concept of the kingdom of God, there is an already but a not yet element. In other words, there is a sense in which Christ is king, he is sovereign over his creation, but there is also a sense in which the full scope of his kingdom has not yet been realized. And we want to examine that concept a little more deeply this morning. But the basic truth about a kingdom, you must know, is that for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. And with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus was declaring, he's here. Now, for much of his early ministry, that was not the case. Often when Jesus would heal people or cast out a demon, the very last instruction he would give to them, you remember, is don't tell anybody about this. That's always been a little confusing to me, but it, it's been clarified this week as I've studied this passage and other like it because he's simply saying now is not yet the time. Jesus was in control from beginning to end. Remember I cautioned us a couple of weeks ago never to think of Jesus even through his passion and suffering as a victim. He is in control of all of this situation. He, he gave those Pharisees instructions to go tell that fox Herod that I'm going to complete my mission. So we see three elements of Jesus' kingdom today. First, the king's authority, the king's identity, and then finally we'll look at the king's future. So first of all, the king's authority. I suspect it is with great difficulty that most of us who were born here and reared under a constitutional democracy, they even understand a little bit the unquestioned authority of a true monarch or a king. We are used to voting people in and out of office regularly and waiting for the next election cycle to uh, promote agendas. However, kings ruled and reigned as sovereign for a lifetime. And, and so Jesus then as king has sovereign authority and he exercises that authority in at least three ways in just the first five verses here in chapter one. First, he exercised that authority over property. Look at verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Apparently Jesus uh, in his omniscience knows that there's going to be a donkey and a, a foal there, and so he exercises his authority over property. After all, the scripture says, The cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. And so I would say that includes donkeys. And so Jesus has every right to use this donkey that he has created, but he has also authority over people. So he says, if anyone says anything to you, that is, hey, that's my donkey, you will say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And so he has authority not over of the property, but of the property owner, the, the person. But then most importantly, he has authority over prophecy. And what I mean by that is of redemptive history. Verse four, 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus had purpose and meaning in everything that he did. He wasn't just getting this donkey because he was tired of walking. He was fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Remember, he did and completed all prophecy. Many times in the scripture, it will say, Jesus did such and such to fulfill prophecy. And he's doing that here. Now, as it relates to his authority, you might wonder, what is the scope of Christ's authority? Sometimes when there is a criminal investigation, one of the first questions that has to be answered is, whose jurisdiction is it? That is, who has authority over this case? And we may wonder, how far does Christ's authority extend? And that's a very good question, and, and thank you for asking it. Let's turn over to Matthew 28, and we'll seek to answer the question you've asked. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 18, now we know this to be the Great Commission, the very last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. We are a Acts 1-8 church, but we're also a Great Commission church. And we love to quote here as it relates to our missions program, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But sometimes, unfortunately, we sort of uh, carve that verse as a motto out of its original context. And its original context had to do with the authority of Christ as King, which is our subject today. So back up to verse 16, and let's read that in context. He said, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, what is the extent of Christ's authority? Well, it is universal in scope, isn't it? He says all authority, and I take that very literally. So, this is the king's authority. It is universal in scope. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, let, let's take the possibilities. Even in his earthly ministry, Jesus declared his authority over all. All realms, that is, in the physical realm. When Jesus saw sickness, leprosy, blindness, lameness, He addressed it, didn't He? He said, take up your bed and walk. He healed the blind eyes. He walked on the water in the physical realm. But His greatest manifest, manifestation of His authority in the physical realm is that He raised the dead. In fact, in some faith traditions, um, this Saturday coming is called Lazarus Saturday because we believe that was the day that He raised Lazarus from the dead. But He has authority in the physical realm and also the spiritual realm. When Jesus would go from village to village, first in Galilee and later down in Judea, yes, He was teaching, yes, He was healing the sick, but He was also casting out demons, wasn't He? That part of the world was just infested with demonic activity, and Jesus bound and cast out those demons wherever he went. And I've often noted with great interest that those demons had better theology than the Pharisees. Because when they would see Jesus coming, they would go, uh, why are you here, O Son of God? That They recognized him as the Messiah, even though the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the religious leaders, did not. 
So he's Lord over the physical realm. He's king over the spiritual realm. But he's also, as we'll see today, king and judge over the living and the dead. He is a king who will ultimately judge. Now, not nearly everyone in Jesus' day, just like not nearly everyone in our day, bows their knee to that authority. Doesn't make his authority any less potent, but not everyone recognizes it. Matthew 21, verse 23. Look over a few verses. Right after Jesus comes into the city, the people lay down their coats. The children, the scripture says, welcome him as their king. But not everybody. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Can I give you the, the Keith Sanders translation of that? They're asking, who do you think you are? How dare you come into our city, come into our holy temple in this fashion? They did not bow their knee to his lordship, to his reign, to his kingdom. In fact, they were representative of the larger body of people that rejected their Messiah because he wasn't the savior they wanted. They were looking forward, they thought, to a Messiah, to a savior, but this Messiah, Jesus, the God of the Bible, as we've said, not of their imagination, required personal repentance and faith. Remember that many of them believe by their DNA, by virtue of the fact of being descendants of Abraham, that they were automatically part of the kingdom and right with God. But Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him, he said. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says this was a stumbling block to Jewish people. They just kept tripping over the fact that they had to come in contrition and humility and repentance the same way the pagans did. They were also put off by Jesus, I think, because he did not dote on the rich or religious. In fact, he reserved his harshest criticisms for some in these two categories. And, and he certainly did not do things as they would have or expected the Messiah to do. Let me give you a few examples. Just in this passage, he rides into town on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace and, and humility. They didn't want a peaceful, humble king. They wanted a warrior king. They wanted someone to throw off the oppressors and establish Israel as an empire. But beyond that, even in his personal life, he fellowshiped and ate with people they thought were unworthy. He ate with tax collectors. He elevated the status of women. He healed lepers. But worst of all, from their perspective, is that he called them out, the religious leaders. He called them out on their religious hypocrisy. No, this was not the king they wanted to serve. So secondly, we see not only the king's authority, but the king's identity. Verse 9, the crowds were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Now that's a good question. When people understand who Jesus is and what he really said, a proper question is, who is this? 
Now they were not just wanting that for information's sake so they could attach a name to a face. They were really asking the same question that the Pharisees did in the temple. Where does he get this authority? Why are the people recognizing him as the king? And, and so the words come back, he is the son of David. Well, that was true enough. This was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Remember, God declared to King David that there will never cease to be one of your descendants on the throne of Israel. A lot of people have been put off by that because we know that uh, that kingdom we thought came to an end at a certain point in time. But he's speaking here of an eternal king, one who reigns forever and ever. That can only be Christ. Do you remember from your Western civilization studies, either in uh, high school or college, you had to study all these kings and queens and empires and dynasties. And if you had a really hard professor, he would make you learn dates. And you had to learn the beginning date and the ending date and then the dash in the middle, right? But all dynasties and kingdoms have the same thing in common, they end. Bill Gaither picked up on that in one of his most famous songs that he wrote when he said, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something different about the name of Jesus. Jesus was a son of David. He had every right legally as a descendant of David to be the king. We have two different genealogical records proving that found in the four gospels. But beyond being the son of David, he is the one who came and comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to come or to speak or to cast out demons in the name of the Lord? Well, it means, if anything, one who comes with his full backing and authority. Jesus not only is a prophet, he is God in the flesh, the exact representation, the scripture says, of the Father. So he has all of the authority of the Father. He is God in the flesh. Now, many of your lost friends and neighbors don't understand this. They think by having a positive attitude towards the historical figure Jesus as a good man or a positive role model or even a great prophet that they have done enough to revere him. They have not. Are you aware that there are over one billion Muslims in the world and every one of them revere Jesus as a prophet. But they do not bow their knee to him as Lord, as their king. A lot of people that day recognize Jesus as an honorable figure. But to say he comes in the name of the Lord, they probably didn't even understand exactly what they were saying. He came with the full authority. Now, now how was that authority manifested? How is it verified, I should say? Well, a number of ways. One, by fulfilled prophecy. Going back to the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled every explicit detail of the Messiah and, and the prophecy around him. Even the very village that he would born, be born in, Bethlehem, was predicted in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, we're told that he'd be a suffering servant. We're told about his passion, we're told about his death, we're told about even his burial in the tomb of a rich man that was yet to come. But in his miracles and in his signs, Jesus affirmed that he was God in the flesh, only God can raise the dead. Even in his teaching, 
the people recognize this is not like human teaching. He says that he teaches as one having authority, not like the other teachers. But probably the, the clearest affirmation that Jesus comes in the name and with the full authority of God is at his baptism. You remember when Jesus came out into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Scripture says, an audible voice from heaven declared, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes in the full authority and in the name of the Lord. Well, they get a little more specific to answer the question, who is this? They call him by his given name, Jesus. You may know that this word Jesus is a derivative of the Old Testament named Joshua. We studied the book of Joshua last summer, great detail. The Lord saves is what it means. But Jesus was not named by his parents. Matthew 121 says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's great meaning in his name. He is the Lord saves. And they say he's a prophet. Well, Jesus was and is a prophet. A prophet is who, one who declares a message from God. But he was more than a prophet. We see in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilling three offices of prophet and priest and king. But as I said, it's not enough to save you to believe that Jesus was sent from God. Here's another thing about kings and kingdoms. Even the best ones don't stay around very long. They come and go, don't they? Now, now let's look and see how Jesus is fundamentally different than any other king. Let's look finally at the king's future. The king's future. You remember that the first time that Jesus came as he entered Jerusalem that day on the foal of a donkey, he did so in humility and peacefully. He didn't have an armed battalion behind him ready to take over the government. Now, they were ready to do that. Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, then they would fight. But he didn't have an army with him. Isaiah 53, 7 really describes the humility and the meekness of Jesus. He was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb is led to slaughter and like a sheep is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Now, I fear that the picture that most people in our culture have of Jesus in their mind's eye is of a weak, sort of frail, pathetic, pacifistic, hippie figure who was a misunderstood victim of the times in, in which he lives and lived. No, no, a thousand times no. Jesus is not a pathetic figure. Jesus is God in the flesh. None of this happened outside of his control or his timeline. He took on a body at just the right time, the scripture says, to fulfill a rescue mission, to save sinners. To accomplish that, he lived a perfect life and he willingly laid down his life on the cross. And three days later, he arose victorious over death. And one day his kingdom, which was inaugurated at his incarnation will be consummated at his second coming. That's what we mean when we say the kingdom has an element of the already and the not yet. Remember that I said that Jesus 
fulfilled all messianic prophecy. There is one prophecy, however, that he made that has yet to be fulfilled. He said he's coming again, didn't he? He told his disciples shortly before his death in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Scripture teaches that uh, Jesus is coming again to complete and to have the full manifestation of his kingdom. We don't even have to wonder what that's going to be like. God in his sovereignty is gracious to show us in his scripture exactly what's going to happen. It's found in Revelation chapter 19. Let's turn there, shall we? Last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. You remember the Apostle John, the Apostle that Jesus loved, the one that leaned on his bosom the night of his arrest there in the upper room, was given this great privilege of seeing the future, what was going to happen at Jesus' second coming, among other things. And he was told to write down what he saw, and he did. He was obedient to that. And so we know what's going to happen. Revelation 19, verse 11, John is speaking. And he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, friends, that's quite a contrast from his first coming into Jerusalem when he rode a symbol of humility and peace, a donkey. And he did not come with an army. But when he comes again, he's not coming to die. Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost the first time. But when he comes again, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And so when you think and Dwell upon Jesus. Please don't have in your mind's eye a weak, pathetic victim. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look how he's described. He comes not riding a foal of a donkey, but on a white horse. Now what is the significance of that? Well, a white horse was a horse of war. Roman generals rode white horses. And when they won a great victory over their enemies, they would have what was called a triumph. We've kind of co-opted that word into the English language. When a sports team wins a trophy, we say they triumphed. But that a, a, a pales into comparison to what a Roman triumph was. When a general would defeat another kingdom, he would parade the prisoners of war before him, and then the spoils of war behind that, and then his soldiers would walk in front of him, and then he would come behind, often pulled by white horses in a chariot declaring his victory. And this is what Jesus is doing when he comes again. He's declaring his victory and his authority and 
his purity, the sinless one. And then when he comes, he has a specific task. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that it may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's the kind of king that the Jews thought they wanted. They wanted a king to really give it to their enemies. What they didn't understand is that they were part of the problem. That they needed to bow their knee personally to the Lordship of Jesus and if they did not, they would be trampled down as grapes were. Back during the United States Civil War in the 1860s, after the first battle of Bull Run, reality set in on both sides that this was going to be a long and bloody war. And there was a lady who visited Washington, D.C., and she saw the campfires of those ill-trained Union troops and how their morale was very low, and she took pen in hand and she wrote the battle hymn of the Republic. And in that hymn, it speaks of God's righteous wrath and trampling out the vintage, the grapes where the, wrath, where the grapes of wrath are stored. She takes that from this text. That, that's the image of God when Christ comes again. He's going to squeeze out in judgment the nations who refuse to bow to him in this life. And that's a gruesome but it is a real truth. Jesus is coming not to save, he's coming to judge. So dear friend, my question to you is, have you received your king? That is, have you bowed your knee to his lordship? And there were a lot of people that day that they were positive towards Jesus. They even went through some religious exercises. They chanted some Bible verses. They threw their coats down as a symbol that, yes, we're accepting him as Jesus, but just a few days later, these same people are crying out, crucify him. He turned out not to be the kind of king they wanted, but he is the king nonetheless. And what the Bible clearly says is that every knee will one day bow of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The question is, have you bowed to him or will you bow to him in this life or will you bow to him on the day of judgment? If you bow to him in this life, he receives you and accepts you into his forever family. He forgives your sins. He takes your sins as far as the east is from the west. You become, the scripture says, to be in Christ. That is, you don't have to fear the judgment of God. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if you wait until the day of judgment, you will bow the knee, but you will not be forgiven. You will be judged. Have you received your king? Have you bowed the knee? That is, have you given up control of your own life? Have you recognized what he says about you is true, that you are a sinner and you fall short of his glory? Do you agree with his assessment of you that you need forgiveness? Have you turned from those sins and have you by faith received the free gift of salvation? And if not, will you today? See, we don't know when Christ will come. He doesn't tell us the date. He says it will be in a time when you think not. And I don't know that there's ever been an epic of human history where people think less about the second coming than they do today. This is a day when we think not. We know this, 
that at the very least, when we die, and it is appointed to all of us once to die, our opportunity for grace and forgiveness will cease. Jesus is not just going to judge the people that are alive when he returns. He's going to judge the living and the dead, the scripture says. So what about you? Have you bowed your knee to his lordship? Have you received him as Lord and Savior? And if not, will you today? You can. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just as all have sinned, just as Jesus has all authority, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes you, no matter what you've done or, or where you've been. If you will submit to your king, you will become part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your clear word. When Jesus came the first time there into Jerusalem, he did so with humility. He said of himself that he's meek and lowly of heart. We're grateful for that, Lord. May all of us seek to emulate that as your spirit leads us. But Lord, we know that one day when he comes again, he's coming to declare his authority over all of creation. King of kings and Lord of lords is his title. And Father, that includes us. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Lord, I pray that every soul in this room would bow their knee and receive their Savior before it is everlasting too late. Father, for many who have been Christians a long time, we pray that we would rejoice every time we contemplate the second coming. Lord, we know for those who don't know you that the second coming of Jesus is a fearful prospect. But it doesn't have to be. Lord, I pray if there's even one soul here today that the Spirit is drawing, that they would repent of sins and by faith receive Jesus as Lord and Savior today and then publicly profess Him. The Scripture says if we are ashamed of Him before men, He'll be ashamed of us before our Father who is in heaven. Father, I pray you'd give boldness to some here today who need it. Glorify yourself among us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.